You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Growing up in church, Burton Baptist Church in Perry, Florida, we had a couple of men in the church who were prophecy buffs, prophecy experts. And on occasion, they would teach and share their thoughts and their views. I remember as a young man growing up in that church, boy, this is, sounds a little scary, and it's fascinating, and I want to know more, I want to understand it better. I even attended a couple of prophecy uh, conferences. An expert came in and, and shared with the church about end times matters. I remember again thinking, this is fascinating. I want to know more. I want to understand it better. But if I'm honest, as a, as a young man in that church, I, I didn't make the connection between those prophetic teachings or teachings about prophecy and my daily Christian life. In other words, I didn't, I didn't really see the relevance. It was interesting, fascinating, but did it really apply to a young man in high school? Did it really apply to my life? What was the purpose of this prophetic information that God has given us in his word? Well, in these last two sermons in the book of Daniel, we're going to study in detail a prophecy given to Daniel, and we're going to see the context in which the prophecy was given, and we're going to see Daniel's response, and we're going to learn from these last two chapters in Daniel what the purpose of prophecy is. Why does God give us apocalyptic literature, a, a, a view of the end times, a view of the future. Why is there direct relevance for our lives? Well, I want you to see this in Daniel chapter 11. Turn there with me. We are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse. We've got two sermons left in this book. The title is A Purpose or The Purpose of Prophecy Part 1 today and then next week The Purpose of Prophecy Part 2. And then we will finish up the uh, book of Daniel. But this morning we're in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to just read the first four verses, then we'll refer back to the chapter as this sermon unfolds. Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Daniel 11, verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Some believe this is a reference to the, the angelic figure Gabriel mentioned in uh, chapter 10, saying he's going to stand up and strengthen and confirm Daniel as he receives these visions and responds to these visions. But in verse 2 it says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, 
And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we, we pause in this minute, this moment, to recognize once again our spiritual poverty. Lord, we bring nothing to the table. We are entirely dependent upon your grace. Your grace that saves, your grace that strengthens, your grace that sanctifies. Your grace that instructs us by the power of the Spirit as we study your word. We need your grace. We believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So as we study your word, Holy Spirit, would you meet with us, grant us the gift of illumination, and move our hearts to respond to the word. May Jesus be exalted in this place. May lives be transformed. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, we've made it to the last of three visions given to Daniel, starting in Daniel chapter 7. Three visions were given, and we've come to the last of those three These visions detailed for Daniel the near future from his time period of Israel and even gave details of the last days. The vision, this third vision that we're going to study this morning, is a prophecy. And it leads to a profound question. Why did God give Daniel these prophecies, these predictions of the future? Why do we have, again, apocalyptic literature in the Bible? Why do we have end times verses? Why are there many prophecies in the Bible that have come to pass and many prophecies in the Bible that are yet to transpire? What's the purpose of prophecy? Well, if we understand, and here's my, kind of my thesis this morning, if we understand the purpose, purpose of prophecy, we'll understand the prophetic writings better. And not only that, we'll understand them better and we'll understand the relevance for our lives, which is critical because we don't want to just gather together and exchange some Bible facts this morning. We want to be different on Monday than we were today. We, we want to be transformed so we can make a difference out there in the world, right? So what is the, the relevance for our lives? We're going to walk through Daniel 11 and 12 these next two weeks and we're going to discuss the prophecy given to Daniel and discuss its implications or the purpose of it. Now, in chapter 11, we give you a lot of information here at the beginning, but in chapter 11, we find detailed descriptions of the events that were referred to symbolically in chapters 2, 7, and 8. If you remember chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of a, a, a statue with four different parts. That was a symbolic vision. We saw the vision of the, the, the rams and the goats in um, chapter 8, the beast in chapter 7. Those were symbolic visions. Well, this is the same information, but spelled out in more detailed form. It's just given to Daniel uh, as a message. 
One verse in chapter 11, verse 2, is on Persia. If you remember the, the past visions we've studied, Babylon was king of the hill, but they were overthrown by the Medo-Persians. The Persians were overthrown by the Greeks. Greeks were overthrown by the Romans. All these visions teach what was coming. And there's one verse on Persia in chapter 11, verse 2, and there's two verses on Greece in chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. But after the section on Persia and Greece, there's an extended section about the aftermath of Alexander the Great's empire. Alexander the Great, great military leader and conqueror, he led Greece to worldwide dominance, but he died, and after he died at a young age, his empire was divided up into four different parts under four different generals that served him. And this section, chapter 5 through 20 in chapter 11, is about these four different kingdoms. But the focus narrows, really, to two of the four kingdoms. And the focus is on the Ptolemaic dynasty or kingdom, which is roughly Egypt, and the Seleucid dynasty or empire, which is roughly Syria. So the Ptolemaic dynasty, the Seleucid dynasty, were two of the four parts of Alexander the Great's empire. And this section of scripture, again, verses 5 through 20 of chapter 11, focuses on the conflict between Egypt and Syria, or the Ptolemaic dynasty and the Seleucid Dynasty. Now, let me just tell you this on the front end. We're going to look at a few verses more specifically, but this ongoing uh, conflict between really Egypt and Syria is full of intrigue and betrayal and subterfuge and brutality. And listen, guess what piece of land is caught in the middle of the conflict between the Egyptians and the Syrians? Palestine, the promised land where the Jews lived. That's why there's so much focus on these two kingdoms because the Jews were caught up in the middle of this ongoing battle. So what I want to do is I want to highlight some of the specificity and details of this prophecy and then, and then show you the relevance for your life and for my life. So let me show you how specific these prophecies were, because when they were given to Daniel, this was before they actually came to pass. For example, verses 5 through 10, we see some interesting information. Look what it says in verse 5. The king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants, he who fathered her, he who supported her in those times. What's that talking about? Well, the king of the south is the uh, Ptolemaic king, uh, the, the king of the Egyptian area. And the king of the north is the Syrian king, Antiochus II. And we look back at this passage through the lenses of history. We have some information about this conflict that happened uh, in, uh, in the times before Christ. And history records that Ptolemy II made a treaty of peace with the Seleucid rulers. So Egypt wanted to make a, a, a treaty or an agreement with uh, Syria. And guess what the plan was to make this, this alliance or this treaty? 
Ptolemy wanted to give his daughter, the daughter of the king of the south, as he just said in the text, to marry Antiochus II, the king of the north. And Ptolemy thought, well, if I give him my daughter, then that will bring the two empires together. It will seal the alliance between these two kingdoms. His plan was, when the Syrian king and my daughter have a son, my son will rule over the Syrian empire. And I'll have influence not over just Egypt, but over Syria as well. So it sounded like a good plan on paper, right? But there was one big problem. Antiochus was already married. And he was married to a very powerful woman named Laodice. And Laodice didn't like the plan, as you can imagine, right? She thought that plan stunk. She didn't like that plan. And so she came up with her own plan. You know what her plan was? She succeeded in murdering Antiochus and Berenice and their child. So she killed the, the Syrian king, her husband. She killed his new wife from the south, Berenice, and she killed the son that they had. So there would be no uh, ruler coming from that line. And then her son with Antiochus II, uh, Seleucus II, became the ruler. And so that's what it's talking about there. I mean, you read verses five, uh, uh, 5 and 6, and you say, what's that talking about? Well, history tells us exactly what that's talking about. This treaty that was undermined by the, the Syrian lady Laodice. Verses 11 through 19 focus on one of, of his sons, Seleucus. His name was Antiochus III, known as Antiochus the Great. During his reign, this is why he's important, during his reign... Palestine fell under Seleucid control. So you can read about that in chapter, or chapter 11, verses 11 through 19. And then we get some interesting historical information in verses 16 and 17. He, Antiochus II, or Antiochus the, the Great, Antiochus III, gave his daughter Cleopatra to be married to the Egyptian king Ptolemy V. Now, this is not the famous Cleopatra. This is not Elizabeth Taylor, okay? This is a different, this is a different Cleopatra, all right? Everyone over 60 laughed at that joke. Everyone else like, what are you talking about? <laughs> All right. It's not the famous Cleopatra. But Antiochus the Great gave his daughter Cleopatra to the Egyptian king Ptolemy V. And he hoped the same thing that, hey, once they get married, they'll have a kid. My kid will rule over the southern dynasty, the Egyptian dynasty. And then I'll have more influence over Syria and Egypt. It was subterfuge. It was meant to gain power and gain control. But to everyone's surprise, Cleopatra from the Syrians, she seemed to really like her husband, Ptolemy V of the Egyptians. And she didn't betray him. She stayed true to him. And so that plan didn't work out for Antiochus the Great. But here's the most important thing, and I'm going somewhere with this. Here's the most important thing about Antiochus the Great as far as the Jews were concerned. The most important thing about him is he had a son named Antiochus Epiphanes. We've studied him already by looking at past visions. And Antiochus Epiphanes would come to power uh, among the Seleucid Empire. And back in chapter 11, verses 21 through 35, focus on the rise and reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Again, we studied him in chapter 8 in detail, but these verses tell specifically how Antiochus Epiphanes would come to power and what his reign would consist of. And notice this little detail in verse 21. Look in verse 21 of chapter 11. 
It says, in his place shall arise a contemptible person. So in the place of Antiochus the Great shall arise a contemptible person, Antiochus Epiphanes, to whom royal majesty has not been given. There's a little interesting detail. Royal majesty has not been given. According to the rules of royal lineage, Antiochus Epiphanes was not the rightful ruler of the Seleucid Empire. The, the son, uh, Demetrius I of Seleucus IV, was the rightful ruler according to lineage rules. But he was held in hostage in Rome during this time. And this allows Antiochus Epiphanes to seize power. Again, amazing specificity. Things that we've seen unfold in human history, extra-biblical history, things that aren't in the Bible, things we just know from historians were predicted in God's Word with amazing clarity. And Antiochus Epiphanes was a terror to the Jews. In fact, look what it says in verses 29 through 31. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be... This time as it was before, for ships of Katim shall come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Because of, because of conflict, because of, because of people pushing back against his, his empire, he flew into a rage. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear, profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes... Desolate, he shall he will shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, and so these verses teach that Antiochus Epiphanes would fly into a rage and go into Jerusalem and wreak havoc. The Bible and history record that Antiochus Epiphanes would would cause the religious observances of the Jews to cease. In fact, he banned circumcision, prohibited observance of the Sabbath, and the Jewish dietary laws. He ended sacrifices at the temple complex. And then in 168 B.C., as an affront against the Jewish God, the Hebrew God, the God of the Bible, the one true God, he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, a pig on the altar, and built an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. Blasphemy. And that's what Antiochus Epiphanes was about. It says there he was an abomination, a desolation. He brought great suffering on the Jewish people. But there's one more aspect of chapter 11. It's a long chapter. But in verses 36 through 45, we are reminded, just like we were in past visions in Daniel... That Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadows the ultimate end times villain, the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is described in verses 36 through 45. And Dale Ralph Davis notes some interesting parallels between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. And shows us how Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadows what the Antichrist would be about in the end times. For example... In Antiochus Epiphanes, we see his rise and success in verses 21 through 24. We see conflict and oppression in verses 25 through 31. And then we see God's people experiencing suffering and steadfastness in verses 32 through 35. In like manner, the Antichrist in verses 36 through 39 experiences rise and success. In verses 40 through 45, there's conflict and oppression. 
And then in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, God's people experience suffering, but also exhibit steadfastness in the face of the evil Antichrist. And so the Antichrist is mentioned at the very end of this chapter. Now, before we talk about the purpose of all of this information, I want to share a quote about how astounding chapter 11 is. This comes from Old Testament scholar Stephen Miller. He says, Daniel 11, I want you to hear me now for a minute. Put aside Egypt and Syria and Cleopatra and Antioch. Put that aside for a minute and listen to what I'm about to say. Daniel 11 has enormous theological value. First, the reality of the God of the Bible is demonstrated. Old Testament scholar Campbell relates. Listen to this. In the first 35 verses of chapter 11, there are at least 135 prophecies which have been literally fulfilled. You say, how do we know that? They can be corroborated by study of the history of this period. Wow. 135 prophecies, detailed things in chapter 11 that we know from human history actually came to pass. Miller goes on to say, Since no human being can know the future apart from divine inspiration, there must be a God in heaven who revealed these matters. It's amazing, is it not, that we see these specific prophecies and their amazing fulfillment. But the question arises, why does God give this kind of information to Daniel and his church? Why are we thinking about how God predicted the, the, the conflict between the Ptolemites and the Seleucids? Why did God give Daniel information which is future tense for us? about the Antichrist and his role in the end times scenario. Why does he give us this information? It's hard to understand. It's head-scratching, a little perplexing, and a little bit scary. So why does he give it to us? Well, here's the statement I want you to walk away with today. The primary purpose of prophecy is not so you can sit around and guess who the Antichrist is going to be. The primary purpose of prophecy is not so you can set dates anticipating the return of Christ. The primary purpose of prophecy is not to fill up a room when you have a prophecy conference because it's kind of interesting. The primary purpose of prophecy, hear me, is spiritual preparation. God gives you this information because he wants to do something in your life to prepare you to live faithfully through what's coming. Spiritual preparation. And if you don't get that, then prophecy is going to seem beyond your reach. And yeah, it's interesting, but it doesn't really seem relevant. It is ex- prophecy is extremely relevant. It is life-changing. Because God gives it to bring about spiritual preparation. Now, for the next two weeks, I want to talk about four areas in which God wants to prepare you spiritually. Four things God wants to do in your life as a response to this type of information. We'll look at two this week and two next week. All the stuff I've already said, that was just introduction, okay? But we've got donuts. Okay, all right, so... Let let me give you two of the four things God wants to do in your life and the reason he's given you prophecy. Number one, God gives his people prophecy 
to produce steel in our bones. Steel in our bones. God wants us to be strong. God wants us to live with spiritual fortitude. God wants us to stand steadfast as we walk through the trials and tribulations of this life. God wants to put steel in your bones and steel in my bones. He wants to make us strong. Not folding at the first sign of opposition or hardship or evil, but but strong. He wants us to have steel in our bones. And there are two verses I want to highlight in relation to this. Look back in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 32. It's talking about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes here. It says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant... In other words, he's going to seduce Jews to, to, to obey him and turn their back to the one true God. And it says, but, oh, I love this verse. Mark it in your Bible. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Don't you like that? The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. He's talking about the faithful Jews during the the terrible reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. But the principle here applies to any of God's people who are encountering hardship and opposition in living out their faith. And so this certainly applies to us because it's not easy living for Jesus. In fact, The more passionate you get about Jesus, the harder it's going to be. Over in 2 Timothy 3, Paul said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to be godly? You want to be faithful? You want to be passionate for Jesus? Expect opposition. And when that opposition comes, you need to have steel in your bones. But notice there, the people that stand firm are those who know their God. Look there in your notes. When faced with evil, God's people are called to stand firm. That that phrase, stand firm, is the translation of a Hebrew word, hazak. It means to make strong, to strengthen. It even Listen, this word even carries with it the idea of stubbornness. It's a description of what I'll call godly obstinance. You're just too stubborn. You're just too much in love with Jesus to turn your back to him. No matter what the consequences are, no matter what other people say, even if you are in the minority, you're too stubborn to be unfaithful to Christ. That's what this word's talking about. Those that know their God stand firm. And so... Your allegiance to Jesus, your love to, for Jesus, will be, tra- will be tested in some way, shape, or form even this week, even tomorrow. And when that allegiance to Christ is tested, when it gets a little uncomfortable living publicly for King Jesus, will you have steel in your bones? 
Will you stand firm? When faced with evil, God's people are called to do the right thing. Not only stand firm, not back down, but actually do the right thing in the, in the face of opposition. Look what it says in verse 32. People know their God shall stand firm and take action. So this means the Jews, the faithful Jews, in the midst of the, the, the terror of Antiochus Epiphanes, not only would not back down from worshiping and following their God, the one true God, but they actually took action to stand against Antiochus Epiphanes. And there were great consequences for them taking those actions, trying to undermine Antiochus Epiphanes. Many of the Jews were slaughtered by the Seleucids during this time. But when you and I are faced with evil, God's people are called to do the right thing. Listen to me. Even if you are in the minority, Christians are not called to test the wind. And once they figure out which way the wind is blowing, then, you know, jump in and follow the crowd. Christians are called to put their hand to the plow and not look back. We're called to follow Jesus wherever he leads. We're called to radical obedience. And so when there is opposition in your faith, will you do the right thing, even if no one else is? Third, when faced with evil, God's people can be confident of ultimate victory. Look what it says in verse 45. Interesting detail about the Antichrist. We've studied this already in past visions. But look what it says in verse 45. It's the, it's the, the last verse in chapter 11. It says, He shall pitch his palatial tents, the Antichrist, between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet... He shall come to his end with none to help him. In other words, Antiochus Epiphanes was terrible. And his, his evil foreshadowed the evil of the Antichrist. And his reign during the end time scenario, more specifically the, the Great Tribulation, will be terrible for God's people on the earth at that time. But... This verse indicates he will be defeated. It says over in 2 Thessalonians and Revelation 19, he'll be defeated simply with the breath of Jesus. He will be overthrown. And so you and I need to keep in mind when we're faced with evil, we can count on ultimate victory. Now, I got this phrase, steel in our bones, from, from a commentator. Again, Dale Ralph Davis. Here's what he says about this verse, verse 45. He says, the bottom line is instructive. It's as if the Lord says to us, you must be prepared. In the world, you, you have tribulation. But don't think too much of the tribulator, the Antichrist. For though he may be dreadfully terrifying... He will be easily disposed of. That should put steel in our bones. That's where I got it from. That should put steel in our bones in case we have to face the final scourge of history. So as times get more and more evil, more and more difficult, we may not face the 
the Antichrist of Daniel 11, but we face the spirit of Antichrist in our culture today. Amen? The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. As we face that, we're going to need steel in our bones. I read about Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. He was an ancient church father. And the reason Polycarp is so interesting is because he was mentored and discipled by the Apostle John. He lived in the, the first and second century. So he's a really interesting figure to have that kind of direct connection with an apostle. And Polycarp was a leader in Smyrna, and the Romans were in control of that area. And eventually they brought about persecution against the Christians and against the leader in that area named Polycarp. He was brought into an arena. Many of the other Christians had been fed to to wild animals, which the Romans were apt to do in that time. And Polycarp was brought into the arena, and he was in his 80s. And the Roman governor or proconsul in that area said this, Curse Christ, and I will release you. Curse Christ, and I will release you. Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How then then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? How can I blaspheme the one who saved my soul? The proconsul was trying to find a way out because Polycarp was a popular figure. He said, well, just do this, old man. Swear by the genius of the emperor and that will be sufficient. The genius was, was equated with the spirit of the emperor. It was a way of recognizing that he was under the control of pagan gods. And the pagan gods have made him wise. So he says, swear that the emperor is genius. <laughs> Polycarp said, if you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you don't know who I am. I like that. Hear it plainly, he said. I am a Christian. Hey, are you ready this week to live in such a way that through your lips or through your life, you will say, I am a Christian? Then the proconsul threatened him with wild beasts. Polycarp said, bring them forth. I would change my mind if it meant going from the worst to the better, but not to change from the right to the wrong. The proconsul's patience was gone. I will have you burned alive. And here's what he said, Polycarp, 86 years old. You threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. Wow. The Romans prepared the fire, tied Polycarp up, and began to burn him alive. As the fire was beginning to rage, Polycarp lifted, lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour, that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. Wow. Hey, we need some Polycarps. Some, some Christians... With steel in their bones. And that's one of the reasons that God gives us prophecy. 
He wants, to, he wants you to know what's coming. He wants you to know it's not going to be easy. There's going to be opposition. But we're called to be faithful. Those who know their God stand firm and take action. So, number one, he gives us prophecy to put steel in our bones. Secondly, number two, very quickly, he gives us prophecy to put hope in our hearts. Hope in our hearts. Look what it says there in chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He wants God's people to face the certainty of hardship, the, the certainty of opposition with hope. There's the hope of deliverance. He talks about the, the time of the tribulation, a great time of trouble such as never has been. From our perspective, the tribulation is future tense. It's coming. We're not there yet, but it's coming. We don't know when, but it's coming. And he says Michael will even have to arise and do battle on behalf of God's people during that time, the, the great archangel in heaven. But it says at that time, verse 1, your people shall be delivered. This speaks of God's people who are alive on the earth during the tribulation. Those who are followers of Christ during the tribulation period. There's a difference of opinion about who will be there, but we know for sure there will be Christians on the earth during the tribulation period. And he says, there they will be delivered. In other words, the kingdom of darkness does not win. All who know Christ shall be ushered into the kingdom of Christ. And I believe this means a literal millennial kingdom that Jesus will set up on the earth which will precede the final new heavens and new earth, which we call heaven. And so the Bible teaches that God's people, even though they will encounter great hardship, will be delivered and they get the kingdom of Jesus as their prize. In other words, and I've said this, I think, probably 10 times through the study of Daniel. If you know Christ, you're on the winning team. Amen? You're on the winning team. There's the hope of deliverance. Secondly, the hope of resurrection. Look in verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, those who have died, euphemism here is a, a, a or death here is a euphemism, uh, sleep's a euphemism for death. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it speaks of a great resurrection. Those who are dead will be raised. Those that know Christ, as we see this explained more fully in Revelation chapter 20, those that know Christ will be raised with new glorified bodies. And they get to go be with Jesus forever and ever and ever. Those that do not know Christ, they will be raised too, but they will be raised to stand before the great white throne of judgment. And because of their rejection of Christ, they will spend eternity in the everlasting lake of fire, that awful place called hell. So listen to me. Listen to me. What you do with Jesus in this life has eternal implications and consequences. 
If you know Christ, resurrection, glory, heaven, Jesus, if you reject Christ, if you keep him at arm's length, if you just put him off for another day and you die in that spiritual reality, you will spend eternity in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. But there's the hope of the Christian, the hope of resurrection. And right across the street here, we have a cemetery. And many of our longtime church members are buried in that cemetery right, right across the street. And it's a, it's, a, it's a quiet, serene place. I see people go there all the time. They'll spend a few quiet moments at the, the graveside of a, a loved one. And it's, it's a pretty quiet place. But on this day, cemeteries will be the most exciting place on the planet as God's people are raised with new... Don't you want to be a part of that? Raised with a brand new body that never decays. Hope of resurrection. Number three, the hope of heavenly rewards. Let me do this we'll be through. The hope of heavenly rewards. Look what it says in verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. On this day when God ushers in the final scenario, those that know Christ and those that have served him faithfully, he says there, will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And so if you know Christ, you're going to heaven. That's grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You're going to heaven. That's grace if you know Jesus, if you've been saved, if you've been born again. But this verse indicates, listen to me, in heaven, some are going to shine a little bit brighter than others. He's specific here. Do you see what he said? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So those who live a certain way on this earth in the midst of opposition and conflict will be rewarded in heaven. That's pretty cool. It says here there'll be rewards for the wise that have made wise godly decisions and rewards for those who are soul winners. Rewards for those that share the gospel and see people saved, called from death into life. Those who share the good news. There's, there's, reward, there's, a, there's a bright shining that will happen for those that live like this. Rewards. I've uh, run a few uh, little races here and there. And uh, when, you, when you run a race, uh, you know, as a part of signing up and paying the fee, you get, you get two things. One, you get a t-shirt, right, which you want to wear to show everybody you ran the race. It's a joke. All right, but you get, you, you want to wear the t-shirt. And then, they, and then part of the entry fee is they give you a medal, right? And um, at the end of the race, they'll, they'll come by, somebody will put it over your neck, you know, you have a little medal show. It's, they're called finisher medals, just that you finish the race, Right? And uh, I heard some runners say occasionally, or I hear them say this occasionally, I don't care about all that. I just, I just want to run. I don't care about the T-shirt and the medal. I'm thinking, you're crazy. 
It's part of your entry fee. And, and when I get done, I want somebody putting a medal on my neck. Right? I want the, I want the reward. I, I finished the race. Listen to me. Nothing you do for Jesus in this life goes unnoticed by Christ. He sees everything you do in living faithfully, even if no one else sees it. He sees it. And the Bible indicates that in heaven there will be reward for faithful followers of Christ. Don't you want those rewards? Don't you want that crown of faithfulness that Christ will set upon your head? I, I, I know you want it. You know why you want it? Because the Bible indicates, just like the elders, when you get that crown, you will then take it off and lay it at the feet of King Jesus. Don't you want something to lay at his feet? Faithful living will be rewarded by Jesus. Wow. And that's one of the reasons we have prophecy. Because God wants you to live faithfully until that day comes. A couple other things we'll look at next week. But this week, God gives us prophecy because he wants to produce steel in our bones and hope in our hearts. Will this help you be faithful tomorrow? Will it? Will this help you be faithful tomorrow? If not, you've missed the purpose of prophecy. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.